church. You can turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 11. We're going to continue our study through the gospel of Luke. But while you're getting there, uh, just wanted to give an added note on our fast and prayer this week that is beginning tomorrow. Um, Many of you have have already put plans in place, and you're looking forward to that. And I've also had questions this week from people who are looking for a little more clarity and still trying to figure out what that's going to look like this next week. And so I just wanted to give a bit of a, a quick overview, some explanation that hopefully gives you some clarity so that as we enter into this week of prayer and fasting, that we all feel like we're able to do so confidently knowing what we're going to be doing and what that's going to be looking like. Um, So traditional fast we see in Scripture is abstaining from food, but other fasts I'm going to mention in a moment can involve abstaining from other pleasures or desires, but it's for the purpose um, of of a spiritual means. And so it's, it's choosing to deny our flesh something that it craves or it desires because we, we have a greater desire for the Lord or for this spiritual thing. It's not a commandment we're given in Scripture that we are required to fast, and yet it is an expectation. We just finished a few weeks in Luke 11 where Jesus is talking to the disciples about prayer, and we noted the fact that he says, when you pray, not if. It's, it's expected that if we're following Jesus, we will be praying. But he says the same thing about fasting. And when you fast, there's an expectation there that if you are a follower of Jesus, you will be fasting. Now, there are a number of fasts we see even within Scripture. There's a water fast where they would have nothing but water. There's an extreme supernatural fast where they would actually go without food and water. There's a Daniel fast that's more fruits and vegetables, but we saw Daniel not having the delicacies, not having the meat, not having the wine. There are a number of different fasts we see. Maybe you've heard of someone who's done a social media fast where they've gone without any social media, or, or a technology fast where they were using no technology at all. I know people that have gone without coffee for a month because for some of you that hurts a lot. That's, that's a serious dying to your flesh to do so. But whatever it may be, um, we're doing so with a spiritual purpose in mind. I've said it before, this is not a dietary plan, okay? If you're, you're like, yeah, I really wanted to lose another 10 pounds, and this is my way to do it, that's the wrong motivation. Now, there are different purposes we see even within Scripture for fasting. There are times they fasted when they were repenting of sin or when they were grieving over um, wickedness or grieving over the loss of a loved one. We see fasts that take place when they are seeking the Lord for direction or instruction and wisdom. They wanted guidance in what they were to do next, and so they would fast and they would pray. It's this intentional decision to say, man, I so need to hear from the Lord. I'm not going to even allow myself the pleasure of eating until I've heard from Him and I've sought His face. There's there's preparation and power that they would fast and pray for. Jesus, before he begins his, his earthly ministry, we see him going out in 40 days. He's fasting. He's tempted by the enemy, but this was before his ministry. There are times when people would fast in Scripture to be humbled before the Lord. There are times we see people fasting before the Lord for healing, physical healing, or spiritual, emotional, relational healing. There are times that people fasted to praise the Lord and saying, I don't even want to offer my own flesh satisfaction. I want to give everything I have to praise the Lord. And when I feel that hunger pain arise, I'm going to allow that to draw me in to praise the Lord again and pray once again. And we'll look at these as well as other ways and reasons we fast this week through some prayer prompts we're going to be sending out. And so I want to be clear how you can get those. Uh, Jason put in a bunch of time this week to put together these incredible, short, informative video clips that explain different reasons why we fast with a scripture in there for each day that we're doing this. If you want those, you're not just going to get blasted because you're a part of our email subscription. And some of you are like, thank you, right? You have a big enough... uh, 
set of emails you still need to get through. You don't need one every day this week. If you want this, you need to either go to the website, and there's a, there's a very clear bar there right at the top that you can click on about our week of fasting, and you can sign up and get an email. But it's not just automatically going to come to you. Another way is if you're subscribed to the YouTube channel and you watch the videos that come out with a live stream from this or any other videos that we send out, it'll go on there as well as Instagram and Facebook, which are going to be hard if you're social media fasting. So you need to think about this, okay? Maybe you need the email because you're not doing social media. But those prompts that are going to come out, it's going to have a written form of everything we'll be looking at each day, but it's also going to have a daily video so that you can come alongside that as well and, and have some instruction because each day we're going to kind of lean into a different aspect of this. And I would just encourage you um, to join in. Now, I'm not going to tell you what kind of fast you need to do. There are people for health reasons or work-related reasons that you can't do certain kinds of fasts, and that's okay. I'm not telling you what kind of fast to do, but I am strongly challenging you if you're a part of the Crossroads family here that you would enter into this week of fasting and pray in some form. Maybe it is the, the technology fast. It's a social media fast. I know someone I was talking with this week who said, you know, throughout the day I'll feel these promptings to just look at my phone. I'm going to fast from my phone so that Anytime I feel that prompting, I want to check it, I'm just going to allow that to draw my attention towards the Lord and pray. And I said, that's great. That's the purpose of a fast, that it would be this thing that daily is prompting you to turn your face towards the Lord and not give in to that thing. So whatever it might look like for you, set a plan now, because for some of you, uh, tomorrow's going to come quickly, and if you're not ready for that fast to begin, it's going to be a lot more difficult to start we're going to be doing this for a full week. Next Sunday, we'll break these fasts together as we take communion next Sunday. But pray and allow the Lord, if you haven't already got that clarity, to give you that today so that you can enter in tomorrow with a plan for what that might look like. It's not a competition, okay? Some of you are competitive, and some of you are like, I'm going to ask what everybody else is doing, I'm going to do one more than that, right? This is between you and the Lord. And also, you do not want this week to just be a week of you just trying to get through it as quick as you can so you can be done with it. Wrong motivation, wrong purpose. We are setting aside these things so we can pursue the Lord's face together. And we can spend that extra time that we might be spending on our phones or with a meal in prayer and seeking his face. And I'm excited, I really am, to hear the ways that you get to meet with the Lord, the ways he speaks to you through this week and maybe gives you clarity where you've been needing it with a decision or maybe you experience freedom where there's been bondage or you, you, you receive a greater power from the Lord and equipping for the work he has next for you. But let's enter this week not putting the Lord in a box that says, here's what you need to do this week for me, Lord, while I'm fasting but entering it openly before the Lord, saying, God, more than anything, I just want more of you and less of me. And so I'm setting this aside, and I'm actively going to pursue you, especially when those urges come to give in to this thing. And I know the Lord is going to be glorified in that. I know we're going to be better for that. And so um, encourage one another. You'll see people throughout this week. Um, encourage them in that fast, whatever it may look like. Let's come alongside each other this week as we do this together. This morning, we're in Luke 11, and we're beginning in verse 14. Would you stand with me as we read God's word together? Luke 11, 14 through 23, here's what we read. And when he was casting out a demon, and it was, oh, and he was casting out a demon, and it was mute. So it was when the demon had gone out that the mute spoke, and the multitudes marveled. But some of them said, He casts out demons by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. Others, testing him, sought from him a sign from heaven. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation." And a house divided against a house falls. If Satan is also divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? 
because you say I cast out demons by Beelzebub. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if I cast out demons with the finger of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are in peace. But when a stronger than he comes upon him and overcomes him, he takes from him all his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoils. He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. And Lord, as we look at your word this morning, your holy word, your word of truth, your word that endures forever. We pray, God, that your word would sink into our hearts, that it would be a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path, that we would hide your word in our heart that we might not sin against you. And God, this morning, that out of your words of life, would be found life for us today. We thank you, Lord, for your spirit that instructs us, that guides us, that teaches us, and helps us to understand the spiritual truth within this text. In our study of your word this morning, would it glorify your name? Would it unify your people to be one body with one purpose? And it's in the name of Jesus that we pray. And all God's people said, amen. You may be seated. And if you're taking notes this morning and you want to write down a title, you could write this down, A Clash of Kingdoms. That's what we see in our text this morning, A Clash of Kingdoms. Now, first and foremost, as we enter this text, we need to acknowledge a process that has taken place up to this point in chapter 11, because Jesus has already spoken before this. We've taken a couple weeks to divide this first section of chapter 11, and he spoke about praying. Not only did he teach them how to pray as he gave them what we commonly call the Lord's Prayer, but also he went on to explain to them who it was they're praying to and how they should approach this loving God who's so much more than an earthly father desires to give good gifts to his children and to give the Holy Spirit freely to those who ask. And it's immediately following these instructions by Jesus that we come to this text where we see him casting out this demon and the people being amazed. And a few chapters earlier, in chapter 9, verse 40, we saw his disciples powerless trying to cast out a demon from a young boy who would be thrown down onto the ground and would convulse because of this demon. And Jesus casts it out, and he tells the disciples in Matthew's account that because of their unbelief, and if they only had faith, they could move mountains. But he says, and this kind only comes out by prayer and fasting. There's a pattern of power we see throughout Jesus' ministry tied to prayer, fasting, and a dependence on the power of God, where we look less to our own strength and more to His that we even see Him leading out here. And it's important that we note this because starting tomorrow, we're entering this week of prayer and fasting as a church and desiring to see God move in a number of situations, personally as individuals, and as a church, as we look to a year where prayerfully we're, we're planning to launch fall of this year. And so there's, there's a number of reasons why we come before the Lord and say, not our strength, it's got to be yours. Not by might, nor by power, but nor by our power, but by His Spirit. And so even here in a text, we can quickly run past it, and yeah, another demon, Jesus is cast out, but let's not lose the process that takes place, this fasting, this prayer that begins. I don't need to know your life to know that many of us are coming in this morning with a desire for a greater power in our lives, 
a desire for greater humility in our lives, for greater healing and victory, for greater guidance and closeness to the Lord. May this be a week that we experience that as we die to our flesh and we walk in the Spirit and we look to the Lord. Now, we need to give a little context here also to the fact that this man was a mute because that may seem like an insignificant detail. Why did we need to know he was mute? Just because there's evidence afterwards he was no longer possessed by a demon because he could talk? Is that, is that why? But there's a deeper significance here that you need to know because there were Jewish exorcists at this time, okay? Jesus is speaking to them in a moment here. But these Jewish exorcists in this time, they believed that the way you could have power over a demon and you could cast it out of someone was that you needed to ask the demon its name. And once it told you its name, then you would cast it out by its name and it would lose power. And so here we've got a bit of a problem, don't we? This, this demon has done a bit of a checkmate against these Jewish exorcists because the man is mute. He has limited this man's ability to talk. So when they come up and say, all right, what is the name of the demon possessing you? What is your name? The man can't speak. And they're going, well... That's about all we can do here. We, we, we don't know the name of the demon. We can't cast it out by name. We have no power over it. We don't know what to do here. This demon's got them in a bit of a checkmate, and yet we read Jesus coming on the scene, coming up to this man who's mute, who's demon-possessed, and Jesus just casts out the demon, and the man starts speaking. So not only is this a miraculous moment because there's a demon cast out, but it's a demon that is cast out that their Jewish exorcists thought there was no hope of casting out. In fact, they viewed people that were possessed by a demon and mute as people that had no hope. There was nothing they could do for them as, as a society. They were too far gone and often they would conclude that was because of something so wickedly done by that person that this curse was put on them. And so you can only imagine the hopelessness of this person, unable to speak, possessed by a demon, and even the religious leaders in their culture look at him saying, there's nothing we can do. But where religion falls short and where man fails, Jesus steps onto the scene and has victory and freedom for this man. I wonder how many of you have experienced that same uh, trap of, of being stuck in a system where there's no way out and there's no hope of freedom and everyone you look to who should have the answers still comes back powerless. And yet here, Jesus had the answer. And maybe for many of you, it's the same story in your life. You pursued and looked in so many different directions and yet when you finally came to Jesus, you found the solution for your problem you'd always been looking for. No, they fell short, but Jesus, in a moment, he comes to this man and he casts out the demon. It's an unmistakable demonstration that he has a power far greater than anyone else they'd ever seen. And yet, because of the pride of these men, because of the wickedness in their hearts and their stiff neck towards him, their unwillingness to submit to him and to admit and you've got a power greater than anything we've ever seen. They begin to try and slander his name. It says, some of them said he casts out demons by Beelzebub, the ruler of demons. He's just demonstrated a power greater than anything they've ever seen, and it forces everyone in that moment to make a decision. You either need to submit and admit you're greater than us. You have a power beyond what we do. And so we want to learn from you. We want to submit to you. Or you need to in some way come up with an excuse of why that power is wrong. You're still right and you don't have to come under it. And here we see the pride and hard-heartedness of some of these. Claiming he's doing so by the power of the devil. 
And there's another group here, maybe less confrontational than that group, and yet still not a part of those amazed that are willing to just say, he's God, or he has a greater power than any we've seen. There's another group that are seeking another sign from heaven, wanting to test him. But how sad is it that some there that undeniably have just seen the work of God are willing to give credit to Satan rather than God because they're so unwilling to submit to Jesus. It's within this very context in Matthew's account that we see Jesus speaking to the unforgivable sin, the sin that will not be forgiven one, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit And I've had many people over the years come to me terrified and so worried and concerned that I think I did it. I think I did the unforgivable sin, Lucas, and I'm terrified that I can't be forgiven of it. And I try not to be uh, insincere, but I, I typically smile because I'm like, just the fact you're coming with that concern puts me at ease and should put you at ease because the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit in the context it's given is with people who are clearly seeing the work of God and yet are so set in their way, so unwilling to submit to Jesus that they will give any excuse and credit anywhere else before they will surrender to him. And he says, let me tell you about the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Those who clearly see God for who he is and yet are unwilling to submit to him and repent. Now, if you're coming in worried and terrified and you want to repent of that sin and you want to seek the Lord and have forgiveness, you are not falling in the camp of these here who are saying anything but Jesus. I'll give credit anywhere else but Jesus. I don't care what he shows me. I don't care what kind of power is demonstrated or authority. I'll go anywhere else but Jesus. That's what we see taking place, unwilling to submit to the Lord. And these others testing him, they want to see another sign. All right, what else do you got, Jesus? That was pretty impressive, but show us something else. And we know these aren't followers of Jesus who deeply desire to come under his teaching because later in this chapter, we're going to see him describe a group of people who want to see a sign. And they're an evil generation, he says, that no sign will be given to. Because the reality is, their issue is not with needing a sign. It's an issue with their hearts. I've heard people say before, if if God just shows me something, if he just opened up the clouds right now, if he just did fill in the blanks, then I would follow him. I'd, I'd submit to him. I would confess him as Lord, and I would turn around. And, and although that may sound good on paper, the reality is, we could look among his own followers and see a man who saw more miracles than most, who still was not loyal to him in Judas, right? Saw Jesus perform miracle after miracle, heard parable after parable, saw the power of God on display and still chose to betray him. It's not that people need another sign. It's that they need a change of heart. Here they see a demon cast out no one else could cast out And they give credit to Satan. Later, people will come to an empty tomb where Jesus laid dead three days earlier. And they'll say, well, his disciples must have come by. They stole the body. Even later, Simon, the sorcerer in the book of Acts, would see the power of God and the miracles on display. He would seek to buy it for his own abilities and his own uses We're not saved by signs or supernatural works. We are saved by grace through faith, recognizing our sin and seeing Jesus as the Savior, the Savior he claimed to be, and then repenting of that sin and surrendering to him as Lord, choosing to die to ourselves, deny ourselves, take up our cross and follow him. That's how salvation comes, not because I saw something really crazy happen that I don't have an explanation for. I know someone to this day that, that had a miracle performed in them, a healing that took place that many of us were witnesses of, a medical healing that even doctors confirmed, and that person is not walking with Jesus today. So don't 
be so foolish to think if I just saw one more thing. Oh, if my family member, my friend, if, if God just showed up one time with something miraculous, everything would change. No, because the hardness of their hearts and because their love for their own sin and their pride, these people are still unwilling to call him Lord and to sur- surrender to him as their Messiah. And Jesus knows this. We, we read in the text, he knowing their thoughts, he says to them, every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation. Here, he's going to expose their irrational thinking that went into this false accusation, and he's going to do so logically and very simply. For people that say, oh, you follow Jesus, you believe all that ridiculous stuff, there is a very logical reason to believe this. And here, even as these people try and slander Jesus, he's going to very logically show how foolish that accusation is, how it just falls apart when you begin to look at it and think through it. He goes, wait, 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 wait. Let's, let's talk about this for a minute because every kingdom that's divided against itself, it's brought to desolation. It crumbles. It falls apart. Many of you have heard the phrase used, united we stand, but divided we fall. According to their accusation, he casted out a demon by the ruler of the demons. Oh, Satan's giving him power to cast out Satan's workers from someone. If this were the case, you've got a demonic civil war on your hands where where the ruler of the demons is now casting them out of people when they're working for his purposes. That was the case. This kingdom is attacking itself from within, it's just going to crumble and fall apart. That, that couldn't work. How could any demonic force continue to thrive when it's attacking itself? It couldn't. He says it would be brought to desolation. It would crumble and fall apart. There would be no power there. And then he takes it a step down from a kingdom to just even a house. Even within a house, a house divided against itself, it falls. Now, this could be referring to a family within a home, just as we think within an army and the soldiers within a kingdom. And within a house, when you have division among that house, it splits. There's divorces, there's separations. The family is, is pivoted against each other. It's not a house that can thrive and move forward but also even structurally. The integrity of a house that is split is compromised. It will collapse. He's beginning to not only address this false claim that has no real substance in reality, but also another reality that these people are trying to live in this neutral zone where they aren't aligning themselves with the kingdom of darkness, but clearly they're not going to align themselves with the kingdom of light that Jesus is representing. But there's no neutrality possible in a spiritual battle. Sides must be chosen or a side will be chosen for you. But there's no neutral ground. Now this call to not be divided because any kingdom divided can't stand I believe is, is a moment the church needs to listen up and hear. Because let's not be oblivious to the, the year we're entering into. More than ever, we're entering into a, an election year where this is be, going to become a reality. Not between those in the church who think Jesus is Lord and those in the church who don't, but a vision that will come when we choose to rather unite under a political party rather than to be unified under Christ by His Spirit in the bond of peace. Now, I know some people that are dreading this year because they already see the the chaos that's going to break out and the division that's going to take place and the wickedness that's going to go on. But I believe we as the church have an opportunity like never before to be different than the world. When the world begins to tear each other apart, divide family and friends and neighbors, we as the church can show a better way. 
to disagree with honor, to love our enemies, to do good to those who hate you, and to not allow this year to divide the church like it's surely going to do to the culture around us. My prayer is that this year, the world knows us for our love for one another, and that they see a kingdom community that lives by kingdom values. And I hope and pray that we as a church are continuing to make our support of Christ the thing we're most vocal about. Our allegiance to His cause, the hill we're willing to die on, and our love for others still at the core of all our service and what we do. Now, I am not, nor will I ever, be pushing on you that you should not vote. That is a freedom you've been given that people have died to make possible for you, and you have a responsibility as a citizen here to do so, and to do so in accordance with Scripture and godly values. But don't forget that you are first and foremost a kingdom of God, that you are a citizen of heaven, that you are a pilgrim on this earth. This is not our home, and our ultimate allegiance is to Jesus Christ And that's the hill we stand on. That's the hill we'll die on. And we will move forward in love by the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And I promise you, if we can do that well as a church, we are going to be a light in what could be very dark times. Jesus here points to the reality of what happens when a kingdom is divided. It crumbles and falls. And he uses two analogies here regarding a divided kingdom and a divided house. And first, speaking of this divided kingdom, he goes straight to the top and speaks of Satan, the ruler of this kingdom of darkness. He says, if Satan is also divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? Well, obviously it won't. It's a ridiculous claim they've made, and he's showing them just how absurd it was. And he says, and if I cast out By Beelzebub, just another name for Satan, literally means the the Lord of the Flies. It's not the title I want for my God, but he says, then who do your sons cast out demons by? They're Jewish exorcists in their day. He says, wait, 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 I cast out a demon and immediately you're saying I'm doing so by the power of Satan. But do you do the same accusation against your Jewish exorcists when they cast out demons? No. No, they're they're giving credit to the power of God in that moment. So he's first showing them here the hypocrisy. When he does it, they say it's by Satan. But when they do it, no, it's okay. It's by the power of God. But secondly, there's another problem with this thinking because they were unable to cast out this demon by the power of God, as they say. But Jesus successfully casts out this demon. They're saying he did it by the power of Beelzebub. So you see a greater problem here, which is, According to their conclusion that Jesus did this by the power of Satan, the power of Satan in this moment then had greater power than the power of God because you couldn't do it in the power of God, but you're saying I could do it in the power of Satan. And then Jesus can just kind of drop the mic and walk away, right? In this moment, they're caught in their words and realizing, oh, this kind of doesn't work, does it? But he just concludes to say, you know what, I'll let them be your judges. You go ahead and go back to your Jewish exorcists and you ask them by which power do they do that. Well, surely they do it by the power of God. They're not doing it by the power of the devil. Okay, well then one greater than them is on the scene. And one who has a greater power of God is demonstrating it right now. And this is what he draws this conclusion to right here when he says, but if I cast out demons by the finger of God or in Matthew's account, by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Since he's clearly pointed out how absurd their claim is, he demonstrates by what power he actually has done this, and it's been by the Spirit of God or by the finger of God. And I love that we read the finger of God, and I know this isn't the main point in what's going on here, but often we read about the the arm of God, the strong arm, or his righteous right hand that demonstrates his strength. And we just get a finger here that is just, like this is just barely scratching the surface of the power of God. This is just his little pinky finger just demonstrating for you what he can do and how much stronger he is than this other kingdom. 
Now, when he says if here, if this is the kingdom of God and by the Spirit of God, that's not because he's not sure. That's not to bring this into question. In fact, you could also accurately put the word there, since. Since we've debunked this ridiculous claim that this is done by the devil, and since we can then conclude this is done by the power of God, then the right conclusion is the kingdom of God is here. And his kingdom was greater than the kingdom of darkness, demonstrated as Jesus has cast out this demon and will continue to do so, showing his power stronger than them. And that's what brings him to this second analogy where he talks about a strong man and a stronger man. He says, when a strong man, so get that in your mind, you're picturing a guy, he's, he's a big weightlifter probably, you know, he's, he's big muscles, he's very capable, he's physically fit, fully armed, okay, so now you're picturing this body armor, he's got a couple AK-47s in the closet, you know, the security cameras, the moat with the, the alligators in it, I don't know what it looks like, but he's fully armed, he guards his own palace, he's got a kingdom, he's got a structure set up, and his goods are in peace, so he's got his goods in the safe. They are locked. They are secured. He's fully armored, protected, and he is a strong man. But look at the contrast here. When a stronger than he comes upon him and overcomes him, he takes from him all his armor in which he trusted, and he divides his spoils. So you've got a strong man on the scene. This, he's speaking to Satan here. The one that they just referenced, Beelzebub, and his kingdom, his palace here. And Jesus says, this strong man who's, who's fully armored and he's got this whole army of demons, he's got this kingdom and power of darkness, and he's got these goods, these possessions that are his. Exhibit A in this moment is this demon-possessed man that was mute. He's got these that are his, that he's keeping back. And they're at peace until... A bigger, stronger man comes on to the scene. This is the argument every kid has had with the other kids in the neighborhood that my dad's bigger than your dad, right? Oh, yeah, well, my dad's got a bigger gun than your dad. Well, my dad has bigger friends than your dad. And the argument goes on until you finally find the trump card, right? Oh, well, I can't beat that. Here he says, there's this strong man, and he is fully armored, and he's got his kingdom and he's got those who are his, who he's possessing. And yet a stronger man comes on the scene, who overthrows him, who overtakes him, and who takes away that armor that he so trusted in, and takes away those things that he kept in his own possession. He takes them from him. Now, what is the armor of this strong man? I was reading some commentaries this week, and I found something interesting, that in Ephesians, we have a list of the whole armor of God, don't we? And we understand that those who are filled with the Spirit of God, they want the fruit of the Spirit in their lives, and they want to pray to put on the full armor of God, knowing that we're in a spiritual battle. But realize the enemy has his own armor as well. And if we were just to take the full armor of God and then contrast that with what would be the opposite, we would see that the enemy's armor is not a belt of truth, but a belt of lies, because he is the father of lies, as we see in John 8. That his breastplate, it's not the breastplate of righteousness, it's the breastplate of wickedness. That he doesn't have a shield of faith, but a shield of doubt, disbelief, unbelief that his feet are shod with a false gospel of conflict and trouble, that his helmet is not one of salvation but damnation, and that his sword is one of the lusts of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, which hope to steal, kill, and destroy. And you begin to read this list of his armor and the strength that he does have, let's make no mistake, he is a strong man as described even by Jesus. And yet against the power of God, all of that armor, that whole palace, 
his minions that work for him, all of it is powerless against the power of our God who goes in, attacks him, overcomes him, and takes away from all of his armor which he trusted in and distributes his plunder. Jesus, the one who has come on the scene, Emmanuel, God with us, who took on flesh and dwelt among us, he comes on the scene and no matter what the enemy throws at him and no matter how the enemy tries to attack him, all of his work is powerless against Jesus. From trying to have him killed as a baby that was brought to nothing, to him being tempted when he's in the wilderness fasting for 40 days, even to these moments when demon-possessed people are brought before him, and not only is Jesus not powerless before them, but you see them just cowering in fear before him. There's nothing they can do to stop him. Even when a man says, oh, this demon's name is Legion, for we are many. And yet a legion of demons, a legion, an army of the enemy is powerless against Jesus. And these moments where he casts out a demon like what we see here this morning are in a small way Jesus bringing that attack to Satan, this strong man, and plundering and dividing his spoils, those who maybe were under his control and power who are now brought and, and brought into the kingdom of light. They're given freedom, and now they're armed with the Spirit of God and the whole armor of God to come against that enemy but also territories and areas where the enemy had rulership. Jesus is coming on the scene and he's bringing light into those dark places. He's bringing truth where there was deception. He's bringing even physical healing where people were sick and diseased for years. And though in some small way this is Jesus bringing those victories, we understand that also ultimately it is his death for the sin of the world on the cross that is overcoming Satan, taking his armor and dividing his spoil once and for all. And though that accomplished the work, we also look ahead to a day, don't we? A day when the church has been raptured up and we are with the Lord and a day when after the tribulation he will come back and, and there will be an ultimate victory where Satan is cast into the lake of fire where we get to experience the fullness of his defeat and God's power and victory, and he sets up his new kingdom on a new earth with a new heaven for all eternity where we walk in that victory. But he's coming in this moment to die on a cross to make that victory reality. Colossians speaks to this when it says, "...and you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh..." He is made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which is contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross, having disarmed the principalities and the powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. Right? He overcomes the enemy and the power of the enemy and this bondage that was on us with our sin. He's conquered it. He's prevailed against it. In 1 John 4, 4, we're given this promise for those who are in Jesus that you are of God, little children, and have overcome them because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. And that's what Jesus is demonstrating in this moment. That's what he's calling them to realize. I'm the stronger one. And I am greater than he that is in this world, the one that is coming against you. And if you have Christ in your life, if his spirit dwells within you, then you are more than conquerors, Paul would say in Romans, through Christ Jesus. And so he overtakes this strong man and he takes away from him his armor in which he trusted. To take it away literally means to lift something and to carry it. It's used in Matthew 16, 24, when it says, If anybody desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. That's the same word used here when he takes away this armor from the enemy. 
It's used in John 1.29 when John saw Jesus coming and says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You see that cross that represented the shame, the pain, the punishment, and the agony of sin that seemed to be the strength of the enemy on display when he had God in the flesh dying upon it. This location that represented stealing men's futures and destroying their reputation and killing them slowly and painfully, Jesus took what was the enemy's strength and used it against him so that the greatest weapon the enemy had became the tool used in his ultimate defeat where Jesus made a public spectacle of him and defeated the power of sin and the sting of death upon that cross once and for all. So that 1 Corinthians, Paul would say, when this corruptible has put on incorruption and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin and the strength of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ." So that where the enemy once had strength and once may have felt that he was walking in victory, Jesus made clear once and for all, he is a defeated foe. He has no power greater than mine. And even death, there's no sting in it anymore. Hell has no victory. There is victory in Christ for all who come to him. And Jesus in this moment, he's calling these people, even at this scene, who have just witnessed this man who was demon-possessed given freedom where he can once again speak. He's calling them to make a decision in this moment. What side are you going to be on? He says, he who's not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. Now, it's interesting. We saw a different moment where the disciples are saying, hey, there were people trying to do things in your name, Jesus, but they weren't a part of us, so we told them to get lost, to kick rocks. They're not a part of us. And he says, whoa, whoa, whoa. If they're not against us, they're with us. They're doing the work of God. Allow them to continue, even if they're just not a part of your group. And yet here we see the opposite. We see people coming against the work of God. They're like, it's okay, we're good with Jesus. He can do his thing, but we think it's wrong, but we think he's doing it by the power of Satan. And Jesus goes, whoa, whoa, whoa. If, if you're not with me, you're against me. If you're going to slander his name, make no mistake which side you've chosen. There's no neutrality in a war between the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light. And to be undecided is to make a decision, okay? You are not, nor will you ever be, on the side of Jesus by default. You are not born a Christian. You don't accidentally stumble your way into heaven. It's a decision you must make, right? You must choose this day whom you will serve. We are sinful humans under the sway of the wicked one until we are called by God, drawn by His Holy Spirit. Our eyes are open. We see our sin for what it is, for Jesus, for who He is. And we confess that sin, we repent of it, and we follow Him. There's a lot of talk about football, right? We've got a, a Super Bowl coming up. In football, if you line up in the neutral zone, it's a penalty. Spiritually speaking, it's no different. If you're trying to find yourself in the neutral zone where you don't pick a side, there's a penalty for that. You will face a penalty if you're trying to live in this neutral space. You've been called to make a decision. Is Jesus who he said he was? You've been given three choices. He's a lunatic, he's a liar, or he's the Lord. He's not a good person who has a lot of good sayings, who I think did a lot of good things for our community and things we could learn from, but he wasn't God. He didn't give you that choice. The next time someone tells you, I think Jesus was a good man who had a lot of good sayings, but he wasn't God, you should just ask them, have you ever read all the sayings of Jesus? Because he claimed to be God. So you think some of his sayings are good, and you think some of them are just crazy. Those aren't usually the people you want to say are, are good role models for our community to, to learn from and follow. And here he's calling these people to make a decision. 
and that that decision is going to be evidenced also by your actions, that your allegiance, it's demonstrated in your actions. He said, you need to choose this day. Are you on my side of the kingdom of light or are you on the other side, the kingdom of darkness? Because if you're not with me, you're against me. And by default, that means if you're not gathering with me, then you're scattering. See, the people that are Jesus's, the people that are a part of his kingdom are people who are gathering. When he called these fishermen to be disciples, he said, come with me and I'm going to make you fishers of men. You're going to be gathering people into my kingdom. But if he's not your Lord, if you're not a part of his kingdom, you are by default scattering. And he's calling them to make a decision that he brings us to this morning as we close. See, the real issue going on here is more than just in this moment how they're determining the power of this miracle. There's a deeper issue going on with the hearts of these people because you've got people who have a religious system that are unwilling to let Jesus come on the scene and shake that up. No, this is the way we've done things. We are, we are loyal to our system, to our religious traditions, and Jesus didn't fit the mold of the Messiah they were looking for. And he came against a lot of the ways they did things, and so they rejected him and anything he did. And so any power he demonstrated, they had to seek an excuse to not submit to it. And any truth he spoke, they sought to try and capture him in his words so that he could paint him as a false prophet. But the real issue is people who in their hearts were unwilling to surrender to Jesus as Lord. And it's the same issue that exists today for people all over the world. Maybe even people who came today or who will listen to this online who have been confronted with the gospel of Jesus Christ because it does confront you. It is a difficult call. It's a call that tells you you need to die to yourself. It's a call that tells you you're not good enough. You'll never be good enough. And you need to admit that you are a sinner who has fallen short of the glory of God. And without the gift of God that brings eternal life, you're headed towards hell. It's a gospel that divides even among families. It's a difficult gospel, but it is the truth. And it is the gospel that brings life and life abundant to all who come to Jesus. And this morning, just as we saw in our text, Jesus isn't allowing you to take a neutral stance on him, on his gospel, on his word, on what it takes to be saved. No, there's no neutral stance. You can't say, I love Jesus, but I hate his word. You can't say, I'm a follower of Jesus, but I hate the church. Be careful how you speak about the bride of Christ. Here he calls you to make a decision. Are you with him or against him? Are you gathering for his kingdom or are you scattering and working for the kingdom of darkness? And so as I invite the worship team to come up, The decision is brought before you today. Not those of you who have made that decision. This isn't a decision you have to make every Sunday. You make that decision once before the Lord to surrender to Him. Then you are sealed by His Holy Spirit. You are forgiven of your sins, past, present, and future. You're a child of God. You're a new creation in Christ. That doesn't mean it's a perfect walk. We all have struggles. There are ups and downs. But you don't need to be saved again every Sunday. That work is finished on the cross. However, if you have not made that decision before, if you are yet to make a decision to follow Jesus, maybe you've made the decision not to make that decision. Sunday after Sunday or week and month and year after year, and you say, I just, because you know what that decision means. Well, if I surrender to Jesus as Lord, that means my whole life has to change, yes. But I promise you, more is gained than what is lost when for Christ we count the cost. 
And no matter what way the enemy might be trying to give you the things and pleasures of this world wrapped up in a beautiful paper that makes it seem satisfying and like it's worth it, I promise you, what God has to offer you is far better than anything this world ever could. And in his presence is pleasure forevermore. Fullness of joy, life and life abundant. That doesn't mean you're gonna be wealthy. That doesn't mean it's gonna be easy. That doesn't mean you're always gonna be healthy. What it does mean is it's always gonna be worth it. And what is gained in Christ is so much better than what is lost that Paul says it's not worth comparing. Don't even put them on the scale, you'll break it. What you gain in Christ is so much better. But is there anybody this morning that needs to make that decision? And here's how I would ask you to do so, to either raise your hand or stand up where you are so that we can acknowledge you making that decision. It's not one to make in secret. It's one to make boldly before the family of God so we can come alongside you and support you in that and also celebrate with you. But if you need to make that decision today, to follow Jesus, to confess your sin, to be with him, to be a part of his kingdom. Now's your opportunity to do so. Is there anybody this morning that needs to make that decision? I trust this morning that the people we're standing among or sitting among are the family of God. People who have made that decision. That there's no question in your heart when someone, when Jesus even in our text says, are you with me or against me? You know. Oh, I'm yours, Lord. I am on your side. I'm a part of your kingdom. I am a child of God. I am living for you. And as we enter this week of prayer and fasting, let's not neglect to start to do so this morning. There are people that are going to be available at the front of the room. There are people going to be available at the back of the room. And guess what? We're the family of God. So there are people all around this room who would love to pray for you. There's no lone rangers when we follow Christ. Lean into the family of God. Let people bear your burdens with you. If you need prayer for something this morning, a struggle, a frustration, come and get prayer. If there's something you just want to glorify the Lord in this morning and celebrate and praise, go to someone in prayer and celebrate together. But let's be people who begin this week of fasting and prayer here and now this morning. Let's worship the God who has brought victory on our behalf. Let's come alongside one another and pray where we have needs. And Lord, as we enter into this time to rightly acknowledge that you are Lord, that you are victorious, that no matter what strength the enemy has had and may still have today, you are stronger. And where the enemy may have attended, uh, where the enemy may have tried to use things for evil, you've used them for good. Where the enemy has brought destruction and and pain in our lives and division, you can redeem it and you can bring hope and you can bring life and you can bring power. And God, I pray that we would lean into that, not just today, not just this week of prayer and fasting, but each and every day moving forward. Lord, we want more of you and less of us in our lives. Lord, where there are those who are sick, we pray that you would bring healing, and yet we also acknowledge if it is in their weakness you desire to show yourself strong, we just pray that you would remind them your grace is sufficient for them. God, where there are those in bondage to sin, Lord, you remind them this morning that there is victory in you. That no matter what strength it feels like is against them, there is a greater power and strength by the Spirit of God that dwells within them as a child of God. 
But that same power that raised Jesus from the dead lives within them. God, where there are those this morning that are feeling a cloud of just guilt or condemnation and shame over them, Lord, would you remind them of the reality that in Christ there is no condemnation. That you have cast their sin as far as the east is from the west. That the work of salvation was finished on the cross and where sin abounds, grace abounds so much more. God, this morning we want to leave here a people that are a part of your kingdom, filled with your power, living for your kingdom and your glory. God, would you unite us under that banner and would you glorify your name in these people? Move by your spirit and your power. And it's in your name, Jesus, we pray. And all God's people said,